I hope that you guys are all doing well today. If you're visiting with us today at Mars Hill, my name is Tommy. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at the church, and you've joined us as we're working through the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And we started 2nd John last week. It's a very, very short letter, and we're actually going to finish up the last five verses of it today. But just because this is a short letter, um, we need to make sure that we are aware that it's a very important letter. Just because it's short doesn't mean that it's insignificant. There's a whole lot in this short, powerful letter. Last week, we started talking about it, and we found out that John is incredibly concerned with the idea of truth, specifically true doctrine as it relates to the person of Jesus, which is Christology, and also the truth of the gospel, right? And so John is saying that holding firm to truth, that, that we must hold to the truth of the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is, or in his words, it says that introducing lies, believing lies will take from our full reward. Now, with John being so concerned about the truth, I think that it's important that we talk about some of the things that John brings up about truth before we get into today. And we need to understand that John talks about truth, not just with knowledge. It's not just something that you know. It's not just something that you can recite. But when John talks about truth, he almost personifies it. He talks about truth dwelling within us. He talks about it being with us forever. And so what John is doing is he's connecting truth with a person. He's connecting truth with God. He's connecting truth with the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. He's connecting truth with Jesus and who he is. And so it's real interesting to take note in the way that John talks about truth, that this truth will abide with us, that this truth will dwell with us forever. And somehow, through the idea of what John's talking about, by this abiding by this indwelling in us of the power of the Holy Spirit, the truth of the gospel, the truth of who Christ is, that we will somehow be able to hold on the truth, that we're empowered to hold on the truth. What John also does, though, is he doesn't allow truth to just be a standalone. Whenever we look at verse 6, we see that he talks about walking in truth, but he also talks about holding true to what was from the beginning, holding true to love. And so what John does is he makes sure that we understand that truth and love are intimately connected with each other, that they can't be pulled apart, that they are one and the same, that they exist together. And I know that in our mind, we tend to think of truth as being like this harsh thing, like I'm gonna tell you the truth and you're not gonna like it. Like that's the way we think of truth. And then we think of love as being something that makes you feel good, gives you the warm fuzzies, right? But what John does is he says that these two, if it is true love or it is true truth, then love and truth are going to be one in the same. And so we need to make sure that we understand this, because if we don't understand this, we may get to a point that we look at today and begin to feel that there's a contradiction in Scripture, which there is not. And so with all of that in mind, let's dive into our passage today and see what the Lord has for us. Verse 9 says this, anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And so when we look at verse 9, it kind of starts with this clarification and this warning. 
It, it talks about how if you run ahead, if you leave true teaching, um, that, that you do not have Christ, that you do not have God, but the one who holds true to teaching has both. Now, this word runs ahead, this phrase is a really interesting one that we need to make sure that we understand the picture that scripture is painting for us. What this phrase is painting is like truth is here. This is where truth exists and you're leaving it to go somewhere else. You're not allowing truth to guide you. You are guiding truth. It must come with you. It must follow you. Think about it like a child. You're walking down the street. Maybe you're going somewhere and the child runs away from you and leaves having no idea where they're going. They're just going to start running, right? That child is now leading you, but they're not leading you where you should be going. They're just simply running. And so the picture that John is painting for us is that we should not run ahead. We should not leave scripture. This is a very, very interesting thing because leaving sound doctrine of who Jesus is, is what picture he's painting here. When we run ahead of the truth, we are leaving sound doctrine of who Jesus is. And what we do when we do this is that we're beginning to put into scripture we begin to place into the gospel our own presuppositions, what we think, what we feel should be true. But it doesn't stop there. It's also a picture of this progressive way of thinking about these things. It's a progressive way of thinking about the person of Jesus. And what I mean about a progressive way is that the truth way back then cannot possibly still be true now. Like we are, we're so much, uh, we're so much on a higher plane now. Like our society is so much more evolved. Our society is so much better accustomed with true things than old scripture, right? We 2000 years removed know so much more than scripture did. This, this can't possibly be the true Jesus because it doesn't fit within our ideology. It doesn't fit within our philosophies, and so this is what John is talking about. It's almost this idea that you've outgrown the teachings of Jesus, that you've outgrown the gospel, that it's too simple for you. There has to be more there to it. And this passage indicates that the person who does this does not have God. The person who does this doesn't know God. And I, and I know that this is really, really harsh sounding. This is a difficult teaching to understand, but in order to see what's happening here and what's being taught here, we have to see this passage in its original context of when John was writing this letter. What was happening is that we know from the gospel of John that he recorded all of these things so that we may what? Believe. You guys remember that, right? How, how John's purpose in writing the gospel, recording these things that Christ said, the things that Christ did, was so that we may believe and we may have life as a result of that. Well, by the time we get to these letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, there's been many that have believed. But in the first century church, there were also those who were beginning to look at these teachings and say they could not possibly be true. There were those that, according to John, have gone out. John 7 says that many deceivers have gone out, that many have left, that many have left the doors of the church, that many have gone for the purpose of sharing a false gospel, that many have gone and are liars. And I know that that's harsh, harsh language. But when we think about this, this is the same type of language that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 24. 
You guys may remember in Matthew chapter 24, our context is Jesus and the disciples are talking about the end of the age, the end times, and the disciples ask, how will we know? And in verse four, Jesus says this, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And so here Jesus is talking about false messiahs. Verse 10 says, then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And so there will be many that will come that will be liars and deceivers. As a matter of fact, if you go on in Matthew chapter 24, it talks about the fact that this message will be so strong that it would even lead the elect away if it were possible. So these are strong lies. This is deception. Now, I know that the time frames of these don't match up perfectly when we look at what Jesus is teaching in context and what he was talking about and what John is talking about. But what does match up perfectly is the warning to the church to be on guard, that there will be liars, there will be deceivers, there will be those that attempt to preach a gospel that is not a biblical gospel. Their words will not align with who Jesus is and they will be liars. And when we look at 2 John, this is what the church is dealing with. They're dealing with all of this false teaching. They're dealing with all of these people that have gone out and they're changing the gospel and they're saying these things about who Jesus is. And this is why the language in 2 John is so strong. It's so harsh because what people were doing is they were taking their presuppositions. They were taking everything that they knew, these philosophies that they had acquired, everything that society saw as truth and looking back at the gospel and saying, this can't possibly be true. That the gospel cannot be what's presented in scripture. They had this box of everything that is true should fit in. And so what they were doing is they were placing scripture in this box. They were placing the truth of the gospel in this box, who Jesus is in this box. And everything that wouldn't fit into the box of their presuppositions, they were cutting off. And the gaps in the box, they were filling. And the primary doctrine that we see that they were struggling with in this time was the deity and humanity of Christ that he could not possibly be 100% God. He could not possibly be 100% man. This is impossible. And so what they did is they shaped scripture to fit their ideology. And this is why John is able to say, anyone who runs ahead does not continue in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. But notice also there's an encouragement here, isn't there? Because he goes on to say, whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the son. And that's why this message is so incredibly urgent. We have to remember that this was written in a state of emergency. It was written in a terrible time in the history of the church where there were all of these false teachings being thrown at people. We have to understand that context. We have to realize the context as this was written in, but we also have to understand that did not stop then. We still face this today. We still face these types of teachings that have injected culture into the truth of the gospel today. What am I talking about? I'm talking about teachings like universalism. If God is love, if Jesus is real and was sent to earth and he loves us, how on earth would it be possible for love to allow someone to go to hell? Universalism teaches this, that ultimately we're all going to be in heaven. 
that ultimately somehow love will win, somehow ultimately everyone will end up with their creator. But there's only one problem with that. That's not biblical. That's not the truth of the gospel. What's happened is that people look at love, they're defining it by what our culture says love is, and says this is what love is, therefore if God is love, then this must happen, and they're changing the gospel to fit their presuppositions. Does that make sense? And that's what we see there, but that's not the only progressive thought that we see of the gospel. I mean, think about things like inclusivism, that that every single faith, no matter what the faith is, has value, that this general uh, acknowledgement, this general revelation of who God is, is enough. It's totally fine. I um, call this Southern Christianity very often. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? God guns in the flag. It's that kind, right? Um, It's that as long as I acknowledge there's a God, there's something bigger than me, I can look and I can see that there's something greater than me, then I'm totally fine. I know the name of Jesus. I think that he was a real guy. Uh, I'm cool with that. And so I'm all good. That's what inclusivism would teach. We also see that another one still lives today that denies what the Bible says. And that's that Jesus did die. He really did die on the cross. He was really put in a tomb, but he never physically raised from the dead. That he only raised in the hearts and the minds of the believers. That it's like the spiritual awakening that we keep him alive in our thoughts and our minds. No, that's not biblical. There's arguments still over, was he a prophet? Is he really the Messiah? Guys, these are dangerous beliefs. They're dangerous because they begin to shift what we actually believe. They they begin to move us away from the historic person of Christ. Do you see that? Uh, I mean, think about this, that if you start buying into these beliefs, you're actually believing in the wrong Jesus. Uh, A friend of mine, uh, one of my best friends through high school, um, he is now um, on staff at Reformed Theological Seminary. Um, We get together, and every time we're together, he comes in town, we talk, and we very, very often seem to land on this conversation topic of our doctrine of salvation and Christology, our doctrine of Christ. Um, And we talk about these things, and he and I agree um, on on these points. We just discuss them, encourage each other in these things. And, And the question that seems to always be at the end of these conversations is we kind of ask each other, how bad... Can your Christology be and you actually be a Christian? How bad can your doctrine of who Jesus is and you actually be a Christ follower? What do I mean by that? Well, this is what I mean. Okay, the the way that I talk about this with my class is kind of weird, but again, remember that I live in the world of middle school, and so I have to use examples that work for them, and so hopefully this will bring you on board today too. Um, But the way that I talk to them about knowing who the historic Jesus is and knowing who Jesus really is is like this. Imagine for a minute that you go to a park and you're at the park and you're hanging out with some people and you start talking to somebody and they say, hey, what school do you go to? And they all start talking and my name somehow comes up. And the person from the other school says, yeah, he used to be at my school. As a matter of fact, he taught my older brother I know exactly who you're talking about. He's, he's kind of crazy. Yeah, he's, he's all over the place sometimes. He, he teaches history and math, right? Yeah, we're talking about the same guy. And then that other person said, you know what's the most interesting thing about Mr. Hinton? And you say, what's that? 
And he says, man, that's the skinniest guy I've ever seen in my entire life. One day in class, he turned sideways. It took us 30 minutes to find him. It was crazy. And that long blonde hair that he has, man, he's always just swooshing it back and his big flowing blonde locks. Well, what are you going to do at that point? You're going to say, I don't think we're talking about the same guy. I don't, those attributes don't match up. I mean, part of it does. Part of it sounds right. Part of it kind of sounds like him. But we're obviously not talking about the same guy. Why? Because it doesn't match. Those attributes aren't the same. Though the name may be Mr. Hinton, though he, he may teach these things, it's not me. It can't be me. It can't be me because we are so different. We're not the same person. And whenever we start formulating this doctrine of who Jesus is, and it becomes this a la carte menu where we grab this piece because we like it, but this piece, we're going to substitute what's in scripture because that can't fit. We're going to bring this in and say, we still believe in Jesus, but it's all of these bits and pieces that have been put together. Church, understand that's not the gospel. That's not the historic Jesus. That is not the Jesus whose name we call on to save us. You've created your own Messiah. That's why it's so important that we protect true doctrine. That's why it's important that we understand Christology. That's why this is so important to get. Because in the Bible, when we see the idea of calling on the name of Jesus, it's calling on the name of Christ. It's calling on the name of Emmanuel, who is God with us. It's calling on the name of the one who tabernacled with humanity in a very real way. It's calling on someone who was fully God and fully human. It's calling on the one who died on a cross, was put in a borrowed tomb and raised three days later in a very physical sense. We're talking about the one who paid for our sins. We're talking about the one who appeared to his disciples after his resurrection. We're talking about the one that ascended to the right hand of the father interceding on our behalf. We're talking about the one who sent the Holy Spirit to come and dwell inside of us. And we're talking about the one who in a very real way will come back and collect his bride and we would dwell with him forever. That's the gospel. That's true Christology. And that's the only means by which we can be saved. And we have to understand that is why true doctrine of Christ is so important that you believe this. Has this transformed you? John's talking about don't add to this truth. Don't take away from this truth because when you do, you're running ahead. You're leaving it. And when you leave the truth, it's no longer the truth. You're living a lie. That's the warning that John is making here. And that's why he's able to say so boldly, anyone who runs ahead and doesn't continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Everyone look at verse 10 and 11. It says this. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked works. And this sounds really harsh. (laughs) This almost sounds like a contradiction of the entire rest of the New Testament, doesn't it? It it seems like a weird thing. Are we supposed to look at people that that are stuck in lies and just leave them there? Are we to abandon them? Are we to push them away? This doesn't look like what Jesus taught. Look at the way Jesus interacted with people. Look at Mark 2, 15 through 17. It says this, And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. 
And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw what he was, that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. I mean, wouldn't those stuck in false doctrine be part of this group? And aren't we to emulate Christ? Look at this, Luke 6, 31 through 38. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is it to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is it to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those of whom you expect to receive, what credit is it to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. That sounds like these people would fall in that group too. You think about his interaction with Nicodemus. Think about Jesus' interaction with almost every person that we see in the New Testament. We see that Jesus met them in their error. That Jesus met them where they were. If we go through the New Testament, hospitality is emphasized over and over and over. And so do these people not deserve hospitality? Are we not called to emulate these actions? This is where we have to take careful attention to understand what's being communicated here. This is specifically a call to preserve the truth of who Jesus is. This is specifically a call to preserve the gospel. We are not to be a part of promoting false teaching. Why? You have to go back to the beginning of this letter because this all flows out of love. It all flows out of love. Remember that truth and love are united, right? We talked about that last week at the beginning of this letter. Don't leave the teaching from the beginning, which was love, but stand in truth. They're together. They're one in the same. So how is protecting the truth of Christ and the truth of the gospel love? Well, because it comes out of our love for God. And you think, think just for a minute. How would you feel if you walked into a mall or walked into a store or walked into a situation here at church and someone was spewing lies about your spouse or your best friend or your kids, would you just stand back and say, oh, that kind of stinks? No, you'd defend them. Why? Because truth matters. And why would it matter to you so much in that situation? Because you love them. And you won't stand for lies. You won't stand for deceit. And so when we see false teachings about who God is, we shouldn't stand for it. We shouldn't accept it. We shouldn't promote it. We shouldn't allow it to go out. Why? Because of love. Remember all of 1 John. God loved us first. We love him in return. And as a result, we love others. That brings us to our next point. We also don't stand for lies because of our love for others. Think about that just a minute. Imagine if, if we were allowing people to be influenced by false teaching when we know better based on scripture. Uh, imagine us knowing what we know about eternity and Christ and salvation and the gospel and never sharing it with a single person. 
That would show lack of love, I would think. And so we need to understand that the true gospel is rooted in love. We're not part of these false teachings because of love. Do you see that? Well, when we look at 1 John, it's all been orbiting around this idea of love. He starts out 2 John, orbiting around this idea of love, and then we see truth flowing from it. And the reason that John does this was so that we remember that standing for truth is not hate. It's not evil. It's not us creating division, but instead it's promoting unity. It's promoting our relationship with each other under the banner of Christ. You need to listen to what I'm saying. This is not talking about our denominational differences. This is not talking about you can't be in, uh, in union, you can't be in fellowship with someone who doesn't believe in every single thing that you believe. That's not it, because this isn't a message of promoting division. It's a message of unity and love built on the truth of the gospel. And so what does that mean? That means that I have brothers and sisters that happen to go to churches with a different name on them than I do. And we are to stand together in the truth of, in love and truth because we unite on the same point. And what is the point? The person of Christ. That's what this is talking about. It's not a message of division. And that's why John is emphasizing this over and over again. And think about this just a minute. Think about what our society does to us all the time. Guys, we live in a society that looks at us like we're stupid. That that we live in a fairy tale land. That we have an imaginary friend that we talk to. Uh, The gospel is absurd to the world. And how are we supposed to stand up to that? Well, we stand up to that in unity. We hold each other up when we're discouraged. When we have days of doubt, we preach the truth to each other. We uh, preach the truth and love to each other. We stand with one another. We encourage one another. We push each other on. We pray with one another. We pray for one another. That's what this message is about. Will we change what we believe? Will we allow the Bible to be changed in the face of a society that says that they know better? No. And the only way that we're going to continue to stand is if we do it together. The only way that we can stand is together. And so John is reminding us to be on guard. John is reminding us to stand firm. Why? Because there's false teaching all around us. And we must stand firm to the gospel. So how do we reconcile this with the rest of the teaching in the New Testament? How do we, how do we reconcile this with the call to hospi- uh, hospitality? How do we uh, stand for this? How do we reconcile this when it comes to sharing the gospel with those who are in falsehoods and in lies? Well, what do we do with this? Do we just ignore those people? Do we push them aside? Do we ostracize them? If they're hungry, do we not feed them? If they're sick, do we not help them? If they're homeless, do we not put a roof over their head? I don't think so. I don't think that's what Scripture's saying. Why is that? Because of context. Look at how 2 John starts. It says, the elder to the elect lady and her children. So who is this letter to? It appears to be to a collective church, to a collective body. 
It appears to be to an us, right? The people that meet together at Mars Hill. It's a collective body. And with that in mind, look at verse 10 again. There's some reemphasizing of this. Look at this. It says, if anyone comes to you, well, in this passage, who is you? This is you, plural. It's actually a plural word. It's collective. And does not bring this teaching. Do not receive him into your house. That's an important word we're going to come back to. Or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So do not receive him into your house or greet him. This is an interesting phrase because it can actually be translated, do not receive him into the house. What is this referring to? It's referring to the house, the place where believers come together and worship. It's referring to this place where we come together and hear the teaching of the gospel, where we come together and sing and encourage one another, where we come together to express our love and gratitude to the Lord, to worship him together in community. And this isn't the only place that we see this. We actually see it in many places throughout the New Testament. Some examples are in Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 16 talks about this too. Colossians 4, 15, we see it referred to as a house. And so this is what's being talked about here. And so what does this mean? It means that this is not excluding us from the call to personal responsibility of hospitality. It's calling us to be on guard and protect this house. It's calling us to be on guard and protect the message that is presented. Stott says it this way. Perhaps, therefore, it's not private hospitality which John is forbidding so much as an official welcome into the congregation with the opportunity this would afford to the false teacher to propagate his errors. So there's no contradiction in this message. We are still called to love. We are still called to reach out with the gospel. We are still called to combat error and love. We are still called to be what people need, to, to fill their needs where need be. But that doesn't mean that you'll be welcomed in to share your error with this body, to spread lies. That's not what's talked about here. And so when we look at the church, the church is called to only have one spot of progressive thinking, only one. But it's a different kind of progressive thinking. It's true progress. Boyce says it this way. There is a true progress in Christian life, but it's progress based upon a deeper knowledge of the historical biblical Christ. Progress on any other ground may be called progress, but it's a progress that leaves God behind and is therefore not progress at all. So the only progress that we should be interested in is progress in understanding the true biblical historic Jesus. And we do this while not neglecting the call to personal hospitality. We can't allow false teachings and audience in the church. We can't allow false teachings to have an audience with believers and share in their wickedness, according to John. The letter ends this way, verse 12. I have much to write you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your sister who is chosen by God sends their greetings. 
This is a really cool ending when you start kind of tearing it all apart, what all is kind of buried in this. What John is saying is that there's a whole lot more that I want to tell you, but I'm not going to write it to you in a letter. I'm thankful he wrote to them in letters because we have it today, right? But what John is saying is that I want you to practice what I've been talking about this entire letter. I want you to reject false doctrine and invite the truth of the gospel in. I'm gonna come and share the truths of what Jesus taught. I'm gonna come in and talk true doctrine with you, true Christology with you. We're gonna talk about the true gospel. And in doing so, look at this language, our joy may be complete. Guys, understand we are not designed to live this Christian life alone. We are called to be in fellowship with one another, encourage one another, sharpen one another, lift up one another. And that's what John's talking about. Have you ever been around people, people that maybe you haven't even known before, and you start talking about the gospel with them? And you find that encouragement, that there's something in you, that your, your soul is like satisfied in this, that there's joy in this, there's encouragement in this. That's what John is talking about here. I want to come to you so that our joy can be complete as we encourage each other, as we lock arms with each other, as we discuss the gospel together, the true doctrine of who Christ is, as we discuss real Christology, as we discuss these things, we're going to be somehow made complete in this. There's a beautiful picture here also of family. Verse 13 says, the children of your sister chosen by God send their greetings. Think about this, this, this picture of family that's here. But what I want you to notice is that when John is referring to your sister, family here, he's not talking about just the people that met in that house of worship, was he? What is he talking about? He's talking about other congregations of Bible believers are our family too. So all of those churches that you passed on the way here, you were passing where our brothers and our sisters in Christ, those that are Bible-believing churches, those that understand who Jesus is based on Scripture, those who preach a gospel that is based on Scripture, we're passing those coming in here. They're our brothers and sisters. As we look around the world to Bible-believing churches, those that have submitted their life to the Lordship of Christ, those are our brothers and sisters. And guys, those are the ones that we are to lock arms with every single day as we face a society that is more and more hostile to truth. They're our brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters. And we have to understand that. We have to understand the relationship that we are to have as believers. Why? Because we want our joy to be complete. So what do we do with this? Like, what are a couple of points that we can take home, that we can discuss, that we can talk about? I think the first thing that we have to know is that this entire passage is about standing for truth, but standing for truth is about love and unity and not division. If we look at standing for truth as anything else, we've missed it. Understand that if you see this passage as one that forms walls and divisions and blockades between believers, then you've given Satan a great victory. Don't give him that win. This is based in love, love for God collectively, love for each other collectively, even sharing the truth of the gospel to the world around us, love for the world collectively. Truth is love. And if we see this as anything else, 
we see it as hateful, if we see it as divisive, if we see it as my denomination is better than yours, my thought process is better than yours, my ideology is better than yours, if we see any of those things in this, you're actually reading in the scripture what's not there. This is a message of love and unity. And the next thing that I think that you have to be asked is have you called out on the true name of Jesus? Not do you have this idea of who Jesus is, that that he's this really cool guy that walks around, he was probably tatted up, um, loves everybody, he's gonna take care of everybody, everybody's going to heaven, he's just, he's the kind of guy you wanna party with, right? Um, It's not just this name of Jesus, because the Bible has so much more weight than that. Do you believe that Jesus, our Messiah, came to earth as a human and also fully God to live a perfect life as an example for us to pay a debt that he didn't owe on our behalf so that we may respond in faith to the grace afforded through him? That's the Jesus I'm talking about. Is that the Jesus that you've submitted your life to? Is that the Jesus that you've responded to? And if not, the Bible says today can be the day of your salvation. Is the Holy Spirit illuminating that in your heart and in your mind today, that that you've never accepted that, that you've never understood the truth of the gospel, that we are sinners, that we fall short of the glory of God, and that we need a Savior? Have you ever called out by bending your knee, bowing your head in submission to his lordship and who he is? Have you submitted your life to him, to that Jesus? That's the question that we have to ask as a result of this too. Have you responded in faith to who he is? If not, today can be the day that you do that. So remember church, as we go, we are family. We speak truth and love. We hold boldly to the gospel and we submit to the true historic biblical Jesus And we never let our philosophies and ideologies shape that in any way, shape, or form because truth is truth and truth is love. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you that it so often convicts and encourages at the same time, which I think is the entire message of this letter. That truth does sometimes sting but understanding that truth is love, that we are transformed by truth, that we're transformed by the abiding of your Holy Spirit in us, moving our thoughts, our mind, that we are sanctified in a process, that everything's not perfect, but we walk this road where each day we're convicted and drawn to you more Lord, I pray that you help us look at conviction as a gift. Not something to make us feel bad, but something to move us in truth because you love us and don't want us stuck in a way of life that doesn't line up with you or your word, who you are, your plan for us as our creator and our Lord. Lord, I pray that we see each other as family that we lock arms under the banner of truth and love and stand up to a world that's being increasingly hostile to the gospel. Not that we're gonna spread hate, not that we're gonna have animosity, but we respond with the word from the beginning, which is love.
while holding fast to truth, never compromising. Lord, I pray that we as a church be a people that hold firm to truth, that we seek who your son is, that we seek your purpose for our lives, that we seek who you are. Lord, I pray that you continue to encourage us and strengthen us. Lord, let us be bold, both inside and outside these doors. Lord, I thank you again for all of who you are. I thank you for your word. And I thank you for your son, which is the only means by which anyone can be saved. And it's in his name, the name of Christ, that I ask these things. Amen.